listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Georgie Dent is a journalist, editor, author and prominent advocate for women's empowerment, gender equality and mental health. She's the executive director of The Parenthood, a not-for-profit parent advocacy group with a reach of over 68,000 parents, carers and supporters. Georgie's one of a group of prominent women, including Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, who came together last week to launch a new initiative to coincide with International Women's Day. It's focused on safety, respect and equity, and calls for free and accessible early childhood education and care, expanded paid parental leave, action on the National Plan for First Nations Women and Girls, strong and consistent child sexual assault laws, among other things. Georgie Dent, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Now, let's talk about the initiative first. It's not wishy-washy, it's pretty clear-cut. Can you speak to the recommendations? Yeah, look, so the... The video that we released um, ahead of International Women's Day came about after a set of conversations that occurred um, in 2021 with sort of between different individuals and then ultimately a group sort of formed loosely around a shared sense of frustration at the inaction that has meant that for women and girls in Australia, they remain less safe, less respected and less equal than than men in this country. Um, And so we really thought very clearly that there are some challenges which are almost impossible to overcome. But what our sort of collective sense was and remains is that when it comes to closing the gender gap between men and women, there are absolutely steps that can be taken that would meaningfully improve the lives of women um, and children in Australia. So, you know, the last decade, Australia has slipped backwards on a number of different sort of important measures. So if you think about women's workforce participation, we know that globally we now rank 70th in the world out of more than 153 countries, which just does not make sense when we hold the number one rank for educating women and girls. And we've held that number one rank since 2006 when the World Economic Forum published its first global gender gap index. And the reason that we have slid backwards is twofold. It's because other countries have taken steps to accelerate um, their progress for women and we have done nothing. So, you know, women in Australia, we face one of the least adequate and least equitable paid parental leave schemes in the developed world, you know, among the 42 or 40, among just over 40 OECD countries, America is the only country that has got a less generous paid parental leave scheme than Australia does. We've got some of the most expensive early childhood education and care in the world. And we know that those two policies put men and women on fundamentally different paths when a baby arrives. And that absolutely goes some way at explaining why the participation gap between men and women in Australia is so significant. Um, Can we just break into that a little bit? You know, I feel like we we talk about the imbalance between men and women a lot and what women lose by the time that they spend out of the workforce. But 
just break that down. So what is the impact of the the cost and lack of accessibility of childcare and early childhood education and that paid parental leave issue? What What's the nitty gritty effect on women? So the effect is pretty significant on women, but it's also significant on men and children. So if we look first at paid parental leave, so we know that dads in Australia take less than 20% of the parental leave days that dads take globally. Now, that is, in my view, not a reflection of men in Australia not wanting to spend time with their children in those early years, but it's a reflection of our policies. And our policies specifically exclude men from caregiving. And what that means is that when, and what we also know about paid parental leave is that the pattern of caring that's set in the first year of a baby's life persists over the course of that child's life. So if we've got a situation which happens as the sort of predominant prevailing arrangement in households of dad taking maybe two weeks when a baby's born and mum taking six months or 12 months, that proportion, two weeks versus six months, is what you then see over the course of a child's life. So we are automatically putting men and women onto very different paths in terms of we expect men to be breadwinners and we expect mums to be caregivers. Now, what we know globally is that when dads are offered decent parental leave, they take it. So in Australia at the moment, our scheme offers the primary carer 18 weeks at the minimum wage and there's dad and partner pay of two weeks at the minimum wage. Now, if you look at in the OECD, so the sort of, you know, the richest countries in the world, the average length of paid leave that's available to families is 50 weeks. And Australia offers 18 weeks at the minimum wage. If you look at it as a replacement wage, the average in the OECD is just over 36 weeks, whereas in Australia, families have seven and a half weeks at a replacement wage. So there's just no way around the fact that our policies absolutely prevent mums and dads and parents from being able to share the care in a way that they might choose. Mm. And what we also know is that what this means is women don't participate in the workforce in the same way that men do. And they pay a price for that in the short term, but also in the long term, because stepping out of the workforce means that you are stepping away from the ability to generate financial security. The other thing that's very clear is that kids actually do much better when they've got engaged parents. So I would say that Australia still has got quite a conservative culture, despite the fact that we often want to believe we're a fair and equitable country. A lot of people, if you, if you really, if they step back and think about it, they will agree with the statement that it would be better for mums to stay at home with children. The truth is kids actually do really well when they've got both parents engaged. Kids do really well when their parents and carers are able to provide for them and, meet, and make ends meet. But at the moment, we make that really difficult for families and there is an economic cost and there's a social cost to that. Yeah, so let's go to that. Let, let's talk about this economic issue because, you know, unfortunately in this country everything comes back to what it's going to cost Uh, Maybe that's the same in all countries, but it seems that specifically this debate about childcare and early childhood education comes back to money. So what's the cost-benefit analysis on this? So at the end of last year, the Parenthood published a piece of research that we commissioned Equity Economics to undertake, and it was called Back of the Pack, How Australia's Parenting Policies Are Failing Women and the Economy. 
Now, what that research looked at was the average working pattern of a woman in Australia, in Canada, in Germany, and in Sweden. And what it showed is that before a woman has a baby, women in Australia participate in paid work to a greater extent than women in Sweden. After having a baby, what happens in Australia is a woman's working pattern changes, it drops back, and it never reaches the same level again. In Sweden, while women aren't working as much before they have a baby, their participation stays much more consistent over the course of their life after having a baby. Now, what we modelled was if the average woman in Australia had the same working pattern as a woman in Sweden after having a baby, she would earn an additional $693,000 over the course of her life and retire with an additional $180,000 in super. Now, if you think about the fact that the average super balance for a woman in her 50s is somewhere around $200,000, that $180,000 is very, very significant, not to mention the $693,000 in, in income. So that is part of the economic cost um, that, that women individually are paying because they're missing out on those earnings. Um, and then the other side to this is when we look at early childhood education and care. So aside from the fact that we've got a paid parental leave scheme that is inadequate and puts men and women on very different paths after having a child, families then have to confront some of the most expensive childcare fees in the world. And the fees are so expensive and the way it works with our tax system is that oftentimes if, if a woman has got a high or middle income earning partner, they will then be in a position where because of the subsidy system and because of our tax system, they are paying upwards of 75 cents in the dollar for their effective marginal taxation rate. It's 70, upwards of 75 cents in the dollar. And that's why a lot of women don't work more than three days a week. And that's not because it's their choice. It's because it literally would not make financial sense to do that. And the economic case for investing in early childhood education and care is very compelling. So even if you are not remotely interested in the gender component of it or the social component of it, for every dollar we invest in early education and care, we get $2 back. And the reason for that is that we are, if, you, if we have children accessing quality early education and care, it sets them up for lifelong success. They have improved health educational and economic outcomes over the course of their lives. Now, obviously, setting children up for success is economically compelling because it means we're saving money on interventions, we're saving money on social services, on welfare, on health measures. And at the moment, again, this isn't really well understood, the extent to which Australia does not consistently deliver good results for children. So in 2020, UNICEF um, published a report and Australia ranked 32nd out of 41 countries on child wellbeing. And it specifically called out that we are failing to deliver consistent health, social and educational outcomes for children. If you think about the fact that at the moment in the year 2022, we have at least one in five children arriving at school behind, that's pretty damning. It's also damning when you consider that a child who arrives at school behind rarely, if ever, catches up to their peers. We know that if, if a child has access to quality early learning, even for one year before school, they're half as likely to arrive at school behind. Okay, so what fundamental or concrete actions could we take to begin to reverse this? 
Well, on paid parental leave, it's quite simple. We have to implement um, an adequate and ed equitable um, policy. So, you know, our policy, Australia's policy, statutory policy has been in place for over for just over 10 years. It was introduced as an absolute baseline minimum and it has not been um, added to. So if we were going to look at best practice where we would get the economic return from participating, um, from increased participation among women and get all of the benefits that children get from having um, engaged parents in that critical first year, we would be looking at something like one year of paid parental leave that is shared between parents at full pay. That would be best practice. If we're going to look at early childhood education and care, we need to look at reform and we need to fundamentally change the way we deliver and fund early education. Because at the moment, we have got an incredibly fragmented, complicated system that is somewhere between a form of welfare and early education and care. So we've got preschool programs and we've got kindy programs, we've got long daycare, we've got family daycare, we've got community preschools, we've got different, um, different options all around the place. But what we do know is that it is incredibly expensive, it is not accessible to everybody and it is not affordable. So what we need to do is look at early education and care the same way we look at primary school. And that is, it doesn't matter if your parents earn $3 million a year or they've been unemployed for 10 years. If a child turns five or six in any particular year, there is a spot for them at the local primary school. We need to look at early education and care in the same way. The subsidy model that we have is inefficient. So we are spending more than $10 billion every year on a childcare subsidy that for the last decade has not delivered any meaningful savings to parents. It hasn't delivered improved, uniform improved outcomes for child development. And it hasn't delivered improved wages for early educators. So at the moment, more than 70% of early educators are planning on leaving in the next three years. We can't afford that. We actually need more early educators, not less. And, mm. and they're leaving in droves. We know children aren't, the children who would benefit the most from early learning aren't attending. We know that in February of 2021, there were more than 100,000 mums in Australia who didn't apply for work, who want to work because they can't afford or access childcare. Now, they're not counted as unemployed. They're not in the unemployment figures because they didn't apply for a job. The reason they didn't apply for a job is because they couldn't take a job if they got it because they can't afford or access care. So we need to take a step back and look at redesigning the system with a different lens. Yeah, it's interesting. And you and I have talked a little bit about this um, sort of fragmentation of the workforce as well, where you have a lot of people working casual shifts, for example. Does what you're talking about catch those people in the net who are working in in retail or sort of industries where they might be just working a few hours a day they maybe are not working, well, very unlikely to be working nine to five. Therefore, they're sort of in a position where at the moment they're farming out their children to grandparents or friends for the, that three or four hours a day when they're working because the cost of putting them into a full day of childcare is beyond, far beyond what they would earn for the shift. Yeah, absolutely. And so there are a couple of sort of factors there that intersect. And one of them is that we need to look at early education and care as a critical component of a child's education and development. And that means that a child's ability to participate or attend early learning shouldn't actually be connected with the work or activities that their parents do or don't do. 
Now, at the moment, because the cost is so significant, we know that for lots of parents, and particularly mums, they can't take extra shifts. They don't even try for extra shifts because the cost would be so significant that it's not worth them working. Now, if we had a system where they could send their child to... So the Centre for Policy Development, for example, has published recently um, the Starting Better Guarantee for Young Children and Families. And what they propose as a starting point would be that every child um, between zero and five has got access to three free days of early education and care in a week. Now, obviously, it's not going to be compulsory or mandatory, but if families had that option three days a week, that means that their ability to take a shift is, is not connected to the sort of exact dollars they're going to earn and the dollars that are going out, because that's sort of just something that should exist outside of parents' working commitments because it actually benefits kids regardless. All children actually benefit from high quality early learning, but children who are from, um, with any form of disadvantage, benefit more. So we need to, and that is again, what I said before about one in five children arriving at school behind, it's two in five um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. It, the, there's, that proportion increases significantly when there's any form of disadvantage. So we need to be doing everything we can to ensure that it's not just families on high incomes that can afford you know, for their children to attend early learning. We need to make it a sort of safety net so that it's there for everyone. And that, you know, that doesn't necessarily address the need also for flexibility in the in, in being able to access early education and care because we know that for shift workers, we know that there are all sorts of workers whose working lives do not correlate um, with the early education and care. Um, but what I would say is we need to work on a system that gives children access in the sort of Monday to Friday week so that there's care available, that their parents are not having to do the calculations about can we afford this or not. It's a thing of our child can go there. We don't have to worry about the cost. It's great for them and it's good for our family. So you've articulated the fact that we're already spending $10 billion a year on a childcare subsidy and that there is a, a vast economic benefit of implementing the sort of changes you're talking about. Why does this seem to be such a circular conversation that doesn't move forward? What's the roadblock? Well, I think this goes to what we started talking about with the Safety Respect Equity Initiative. And that is, it's not that we haven't had the knowledge or the, the, the research. It's not that we haven't had the evidence base to support these reforms. We just haven't had a willingness to commit. And I mean, if, if we think about the reasons for that, I would say that we've had a federal government that doesn't necessarily reflect the population of Australia. Um, I, I think quite genuinely, the, the current composition of the federal government, there's very little lived experience of, of what these policies mean. You know, if, if you've got, if you are financially comfortable and you've got a partner that doesn't work or you know, then, then not being able to access early education and care might not seem like a big deal. Um, I think that what is sort of curious, I think, is that you'd be hard pressed to find a person who would say, I don't believe in giving children a great start to life. You know, you, you would be hard pressed to find anyone, regardless of their political persuasion, who was interested in not giving children optimal opportunities. Um, but I think there is a little bit of a blind spot. I think there is a assumption made that because Australia is a sort of relatively wealthy 
country, we, we have a fantastic education system. We do, we've got Medicare, which is, you know, it's a phenomenal health system. It's not perfect, but it's pretty incredible. And I think because we've got those sorts of things in place, there is this misunderstanding about how what we are delivering to children and families. I certainly know that when I speak to different business leaders or, or even different families, they're shocked to learn how Australia ranks when it comes to giving parents and children optimal opportunities. You know, mm. and the parenthood, we published an, a different piece of research at the beginning of last year called Making Australia the Best Place in the World to Be a Parent. And the reason that that is the frame we choose is because we can't say that we care about children if we don't care about the parents and carers who are raising those children. None of this stuff exists in a vacuum. And it's only when parents and carers are supported that children can thrive. So that is the starting point for the parenthood. And what this piece of research looked at was what are the best practice policies for families and children around the world? And where does Australia rank on those? And the results were devastating in that we rank so poorly. Families and children in this country miss out um, on the, I mean, I describe it as sort of the infrastructure. You know, parents and children need roads and bridges to get between work and home or school and home. And at the moment, those roads and bridges aren't there. That's what you talked about before with, you know, people relying on grandparents for casual care for three or four hours because they're effectively trying to build their own infrastructure. You know, we don't expect, you know, a banker who works in the city, we don't expect him to build his own train line to get in there or, or to build his own car park. That's just there. But at the moment, because Australia hasn't invested in the infrastructure, um, parents and children are left flailing. And I don't think it's as well understood as it should be, which is why the parenthood continues to do the sort of research and advocacy that we do to say, this isn't good enough. There are solutions and it's time we demand them. It's a really interesting example that you use in sort of hard infrastructure versus soft infrastructure. And we could have a whole conversation about masculinity and femininity um, in that context. But I want to bring you back to the paid parental leave issue. And you mentioned your conversations with business. Where's business at in terms of a year of paid parental leave split between parents? Is there a will for that? Yeah, so look, what's interesting is that over the last two or three years, one of the bright spots, if you were like me, sort of an advocate for family-friendly workplaces and decent paid parental leave, one of the bright spots is certainly that we have got a number of the sort of leading employers and big um, companies and consulting firms really specifically looking at how they can get dads to actually take paid leave. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. One, it's because they recognise that the evidence shows it's really good for dads and children and mums if they have got that leave. But also for employers, the other reason it makes sense is because by offering that to dads, they're effectively making life easier for mums. Because even if the, the couple isn't necessarily both working for the same company, when a dad is able to take a period of extended paid, like extended parental leave, we know that that enables their female partner, if they've got one, to, to go back to work. So there's certainly, among top employers, there is a sort of willingness um, to act there. But what is deeply problematic is that, you know, 
less than half of all employers, sorry, less than half of the biggest employers in Australia offer any paid parental leave above the statutory scheme, which is the 18 weeks at the minimum, minimum wage. Now, we know that that because um, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency collects that data. So we don't know the exact number of smaller employers that offer any paid parental leave, but it's probably safe to assume that the ratio wouldn't be that different. So if we say less than half of all employers in Australia offer any additional leave, that means the vast majority of families, 18 weeks at the minimum wage and two weeks at the minimum wage is all they get. And then the inequity between the families who are fortunate enough to be employed by big corporates that do offer sophisticated, generous schemes, that just grows. Because, you know, in all likelihood, it is the people who could probably afford to absorb the loss of income more who actually have got the better support. Um, and that's why the parenthood is the scheme that we are advocating for is, is a statutory federally funded program. Um, and that's not to say that employers shouldn't do stuff in this space, but, but it's also the fact that if there's not going to be um, a mandate, employers aren't going to do it and therefore families will miss out. Yeah, and it also takes the heat out of the issue whereby if I'm a small business, for example, and I'm faced with the prospect of having to pay someone for 12 months when they're not there, then that could put substantial pressure on the business, but also it might create a disincentive to employing women of childbearing age. So then that becomes a problem in and of itself, doesn't it? Yes, it absolutely does. And that also brings me to another point, which is that workplace discrimination among mums and dads is rife. So we know that it's roughly one in two women who are discriminated discriminated against either while they are pregnant, while they're on parental leave or in the first year of coming back to work. So one in two. And we know that um, similarly, that when dads do ask for flexible work arrangements or they ask to take leave, we know they also report to being discriminated against. And this, I would say, is a symptom of the fact that our broad cultural settings still perpetuate the idea that dads work and mums care. You know, this idea that flexible work is something for mums only. Part-time, it's just something that mums do. Having these sort of very different tracks for men and women after having children is exactly why we've got workplaces where mums still face the discrimination that they do. One of the, you know, this is why having structural reform is so critically important because our workplace cultures are a product of our policies, our communities, our families. All of that is a product of the policies we have. And the policies we have promote a very outdated notion of, of the roles that men and women have. And those notions aren't, A, it's not realistic. You know, I mean, we've got all sorts of, you know, there are, it's, it, it definitely is not the norm, but women participating in work is pretty normal in lots of ways. Um, there are lots of families where the mum is the main breadwinner. There are lots of families where dads stay at home and there are lots of families where dads want to stay at home. And yet we're all rallying against structures that tell us that that's not the right way to do it. Do you have a dollar figure and a cost-benefit analysis on one year of paid parental leave? So the parental leave scheme that we are proposing would cost an additional $9 billion annually. Um, 
and it would correlate with um, a GDP increase of around 2.9%. So in 2050, that would amount to $116 billion. There's also associated benefits um, that come from an increase in breastfeeding rates and then the associated long-term increase in labour productivity. All right, Georgie Dent, uh, I want to give you just a moment to talk about your Parents Up campaign that the Parenthood is running and it's very much in sync with everything that you've, you're talking about. What, what is the Parents Up campaign and what are you hoping to achieve? So Parents Up is our federal election campaign and really we're trying to mobilise our membership. Um, so, and our membership comprises grandparents, parents, carers, educators. Um, we are a, an inclusive, not-for-profit, independent movement and we're really trying to mobilise our community to ask politicians and political candidates ahead of this election to make commitments to expanded paid parental leave and universal access to quality early childhood education and care and outside school hours care. We know that these issues matter to families. We know that they have a really significant impact. You know, these are life-changing policies and we are seeking members to sort of put their hand up and say this is something that that matters to me and I want to ask the, the candidates in my area I want to know where they stand on these issues um, because I mean obviously I run the parenthood I'm very personally and professionally invested in these policy outcomes but I also I just am so determined and passionate that we can do better you know, it is time for a better deal for children, for families and for women in, in Australia. And so Parents Up is really, we're asking anyone to get on board. And if you think that these policies um, would represent the sort of significant transformation that we know they would, join us, look for us, search us, use the hashtag Parents Up, come and find out more about us. Um, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. And I'm on board just for the record. Uh, so the website, theparenthood.org.au, if you'd like to sign the petition. Georgie Dent, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been great to have you. Thanks so much, Zoe. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Find Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9 slash 214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.